you here uh, this morning. It's wonderful to see all the youth that are here today. That's so exciting. And I'm not going to do a demographic population age kind of thing, but I must tell you one story. I have a father who does some visitation in a local, a local uh, seniors' homes, a couple of different homes that he visits. Now, he started doing this about eight years ago when he turned 80. So he's now 88. And um, <clears throat> he's enjoying it. Oftentimes, the, the seniors are 10 years younger than he, am, he is. So he gets to, to come in. And, and we talk about age issues lots because um, he's getting on. And so he's getting ready for the big departure. And, uh, and I, I think that's wonderful that people can take... Uh, stock of where they are and say, you know, my time is at hand. It's, it's, it's just, there's some things I got to get ready and get in order. But he told me that this yesterday or day before yesterday, he was in visiting with a couple that were out on the veranda, and he went up to the one he knew her and he said to her, "Now, I, I, would you mind if I had a little visit with you?" Said, oh yeah, that's great. She says, "Now you know how old I am, right?" And he says, "Yeah, you're 99 years old." And she says, now, how old do you think this gal is? And he says, I don't know. She looks pretty young to me. She's 103. And he says, whoa. He says, so I'm the young pup here. She says, you sure are. You're 88 and you're way behind us, but you'll catch up. <laughs> and, uh, and I just thought age is a relative thing, isn't it? You know, somebody says, I'm thinking about teenagers, perhaps. And they go, oh, Wow. When I hit 30, I'm just going to be over the hill. When you hit 30, you go, when I hit 40, I'm going to be over the hill. And that just keeps on going, by the way. So don't worry. You can just be safely assured that age is not relevant other than the fact that there's a few perks for being a little bit older, which the older ones here know all about. So um, why we started off with this topic about age is that Isaiah... His name means uh, Jehovah is salvation. The Lord is salvation. And this particular prophet was considered by far to be the greatest Old Testament prophet of all. Now, having said that, I can guarantee if we did a survey of this audience today and asked how many of you have read Isaiah in the past month, there'd be very few hands that would go up. There might be a few hands that could say, well, I read a chapter in Isaiah but to read the whole 66 books of Isaiah, it's a big book. And he's called the greatest prophet in the Old Testament because he was the gospel evangelist of the Old Testament days. And when I say that, I mean this is really serious stuff because he's the one that says so much about the coming Messiah and how do you get right with God. And I, I, I say that very clearly because some of us here today may not be in that position where they are right with God. You know your heart. You know where you sit before God. And you know if, in fact, you have made that clear-cut transition from death to life. And so this writer, Isaiah, his book spans four kings, over 40 years, so he's writing out what God has spoken to him. Now, this is not his journal, by the way. This is God's message for us today. 
And that's what the Bible is. It's not just a collection of Old Testament and New Testament writings, which these people kind of put together and they said, uh, this may be or maybe not true, but we're going to believe it anyways. No, no. These guys were historians, believed in fact, dated things, put the dates right into the Bible, explained what was going on. In fact, Isaiah in chapter 6, first five verse chapters actually don't deal with his conversion, but chapter 6 deals with his conversion. It says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple and it said, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. And so, holy, holy, holy was the vision. He sees the Lord. Have you seen the Lord? Have you? Or have you just seen things about the Lord? Maybe the Lord in another person. Maybe a picture of the Lord. But have you actually witnessed that supernatural revelation of God? Because the Bible is clear. Unless you're born again, you cannot see His kingdom. And if you have never seen Him, if you've never waken up and realized, I am His and He is mine. Wow, that's so cool. I am a child of the King, of the universe. If you've never done that, then I seriously challenge you today. Listen with ears to hear so that you might have the message that is so important from the book of Isaiah. So, this is a really interesting little book, and I'm trying to do it in a way that does justice to the book, but it sets, at the same time does justice to the passage that we're going to be looking at today. So, uh, first of all, let's do a quick, like, very short overview of the book. So, the first 35 chapters are poetic, and Isaiah spends a lot of time talking about different issues. The first part, of course, is about uh, Judah and Jerusalem and God's desire to bring the people of Israel into a relationship with him. What? That's crazy. They're the people of God. They're the people that were redeemed from Egypt. They're the people that went into the promised land. What? They need redemption? Yes, because there's nobody can claim, my dad was a Christian, therefore I'm a Christian. My grandfather, boy, he was a preacher, therefore I am a Christian. Uh-uh, doesn't work that way. Only first generation Christians, keep that in mind. Every one of us needs to personally come to faith. The Israelites needed to learn that. Hey, uh, my dad was like 10th generation from Moses. Man, I got status in this place here, you know? That's what people do. How many times you go, ah, oh, man, I went on genie. And I went on uh, 23andMe and I went all the, all the, my genealogy. I found I'm related to Abraham Lincoln or I'm related to Mackenzie King or I'm related to well, McDonald or somebody. It um, doesn't matter. What we really need to be is related to the King of Kings, Jesus Christ. And so, judgment in the first chapters 11 and 12, right up from 1 to 12. So, it talks about judgment. Then we have, um, interestingly enough, chapters 13 to 23... The prophet gets a burden, and it's a burden for the outsiders. Huh? What's he doing worrying about Babylon, or Moab, or Damascus, or Ethiopia, or Egypt, or Arabia, or Tyre? These are heathen nations. Let me remind everyone here, God loves everyone. There are no ones excluded. No race. No color, no skin tone, no eyes, no disabilities, no abilities make you better or worse because we all need 
Jesus. And this guy is writing letters to people that are outside. He said, get your acts together. Come to Jehovah. Come to the God of Israel. Now, that's pretty scary stuff because, you know, every one of these nations, Edom, Damascus, Ethiopia, they all have their own gods. So this guy's messing with their politics. Yeah, it does affect politics too. He's messing with their religion, their state religions. And he's sending them the message, there is a God and he's not yours. Oh, man. That's not a pleasant message to bring. In chapter 24 to 35, he talks about what the kingdom of God is like. And Jesus spends a lot of time in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John saying this is what the God's kingdom is really like. And even in Jesus' day, the nation of Israel was so far away from what the kingdom of God was supposed to be like. In chapters 36 to 39, you have a little historical interlude which is designed to remind us that God delivers now. Now, you guys sitting here today, some of you are saying, balderdash, he didn't deliver me the letter I was expecting to receive this week. He didn't deliver me that check that was supposed to be in the mail. He didn't deliver me. Well, let me remind you one thing. If you're not his child, he doesn't have to answer your letters. He doesn't have to. You know, I love that expression. I go down the Timmins Square, the mall, walking up and down the mall. Grand, grandparents can do this now. You know, we don't have to. Well, we sometimes bring the grandkids with us. But we can walk up and down the mall and see this woman. She's walking along. She's got these three kids, four kids. And man, are they rat brats. Oh, man, they're nasty. I mean, they're flopping on themselves. I don't want to go. You know, and they're running around. Now, can I have some candy? Can I, can I, can I, can I? You know, they're doing the, the whole thing. And I'm going, oh, not my monkeys, not my circus. <laughs> I mean, you're tempted to say, ma'am, you, you just need to do some little, you know, uh, little instruction on the seat of learning, you know. You, you, you need to do it in a way that shows love, but you need to do it. You need to get your act together here. But we don't have to do that because they're not our children. God is the same way. He's not listening to people that aren't his kids. He doesn't have to. If you rejected God, if you said before, him, I don't have anything to do with you, God. He says, hey, I love you enough. I'm going to abide by your request. That's a crazy. That's a crazy God that does that. He could just say, peace. You're gone out of here. I don't like your face. But he doesn't do that. Instead, he says, maybe, maybe a little bit later, you're going to want to come to get to know me. I'm a really, I'm the good God. I'm the God who loves. Incurably, I love. I have mercy for you. And this is the God that Isaiah was trying to bring to the people. And he was the God of now because Hezekiah the king has a problem. He's got an army at his doorstep. And that army is big mean, ugly. They make the WWF wrestlers, Scotty, look silly because these guys are bad dudes. And these guys are standing there with their spears and their swords and their catapults and they're ready to make mincemeat out of anything that comes their way. And Sennacherib and his army is waiting to chomp on Jerusalem. Not because he wants the people. He wants the gold and he wants the silver and he wants the wealth. And he's out there. And Hezekiah says, what are we going to do? Man, my puny little guys... We only have a few arrows. We don't have strength. But then he says, I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on you, Lord. 
Wow, that's a prayer that we could all learn. I don't know what to do. Admit your inability and then come to God. Hezekiah does that. And God says, oh, by the way, because you came to me, here's what I'm going to do. Tomorrow, take a look at the army. And that night, the angel of the Lord walks around. And 185,000 soldiers die in a moment. That is an impressive answer to prayer. He is the God of now. I encourage each one to never leave God out of your decision making. Never leave the Lord Jesus out of your prayer life. Because you know what? Everybody prays. You either pray to yourself or you pray to God. You're making decisions, you're making plans, and you are praying. So never leave him out. And when you don't, do not leave him out. And you bring him into the picture and you say, Lord, I don't know what to do. He says, don't worry. I got your back. The next section from 39 or 40 to 66, 27 chapters, it's all about hope. It's all about the gospel. And it's really interesting that of all the books in the Old Testament, Isaiah's chapters must have been planned this way, but there, there are 39 chapters that deal with problems. And 27 chapters deal with the answer. Hope in God, the Je- Jehovah, the Redeemer. Just like 39 books in the Old Testament deal with the problem of sin. And 27 books in the New Testament deal with the answer to sin, Jesus. It's really cool that this is the only book in the Old Testament made up of 66 books. It's like a microcosm of the entire Bible. So, that's uh, the salvation section. We're going to be looking at that a little bit because we are looking at some of the highlighted verses first. Because I cannot do due diligence to Isaiah 50 without talking about some of the, my favorite verses that probably we've all skimmed over. But look at 118, Isaiah 118. Come, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. What's the message of the Bible? The message is sin and God taking care of it through his son. Now, all the world religions say it this way. If you're good enough, if you work hard enough, if you practice neighborliness enough, if you do all the right things, eventually it's going to come all out and you're going to stand before that almighty creator and he's going to say, hmm, you did pretty good here and not so bad there. So I guess you're... you're your, your good deeds are higher than your bad deeds. That's what the world teaches. You won't find that in the Bible. And in fact, you won't find it in life. And I'll tell you why. Those of you who have a car, unless you know how to hotwire, try starting a car without your key. You need the right ingredients. And unless you've figured out a way to make ethanol on, in your own backyard garage, you try starting your car without gas. You see, you need the ingredients to make things work. And I'm ever impressed with my daughter who worked in the, uh, during her nursing uh, diploma days. 
she worked in um, hematology and the uh, the uh, section that was doing um, dialysis for those who have diabetes. She came to me one day and she said, Dad, I can't believe this, but if you get the dial off by just a little bit of a percentage, it'll mess the patient up. I, I really had a challenge there today. It was tough to keep that, that patient's chemistry, blood chemistry, just perfect. Why is that? Because you are fearfully and wonderfully made. And that my soul knows full well. That's what the psalmist said. Your body is so intricate, you're off just a little bit. You didn't have your coffee this morning and you're groggy and you can't even understand a thing I'm saying. That's part and parcel of who you are. Actually, part and parcel of who I am, but I have my coffee, so I'm okay. So, here we are. We're talking about this and he says, let's be reasonable. The Bible is a reasonable book. If you think the Bible can't stand up against your doubts, challenge the Bible with your doubts. If you think the Bible can't stand up against... All the things that are out there today, evolution and, and history and archaeology, challenge it. Say, okay, I don't think the Bible can stand up against what we know. And I'll tell you something, the more you study it, the more you'll discover that it can stand up. The Bible does stand. And the people who have done it, Lee Strobel, um, is the more recent one. And he basically said, I, I don't think I can trust the Bible. So he researched it. And he came away fully convinced in his own heart that the Bible is true. But you have to do it yourself. You can't let somebody else's statement, you can't let my statement about the Bible be your proof text. You have to be challenging God and saying, I don't believe it, but I'm willing. I'll be an honest skeptic. I'll be like Thomas, the disciple, who said, unless I see the prince in his hand and see the nails in the side of him where he was pierced. I will not believe. And Jesus says, that's fine. Next week comes along and there's Jesus to show him exactly the nail prints. Though your sins be scarlet, they shall be. That's a wonderful promise. And of course, Isaiah 9 and 6. I love it because in context, this verse is talking about a great light that's going out to the nations to the Gentile people. And he says, unto us a child is born. You see, Isaiah never forgot that God loves the world. And he loves you right now, where you are. And he cares about you. And he has a plan for you. And he wants what's best for you. And he says, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. You want to know all these qualities, get to know Jesus. Have him in your life. You'll have the peace that passes all understanding. Now, by the way, I, I want you to remember there's a second part of this, ver this verse that sometimes doesn't get quoted. But it says, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Do you know what that means? When you invite Jesus in, he's saying, uh, by the way, you thought I was just coming in to take care of this addiction. You thought I was coming into your life. You invited me in to take care of this problem with pornography or this problem with sexual sin or this problem with uh, finances. But let me tell you something. I'm going to come in and take care of those problems and solve your problem of sin and separation from God and I'm going to do more. I'm going to take over the life that you have and I'm going to give you real life. Real life is not what you think it is. It's a life in Jesus. And there is no life like the life of God. 
I am come, John 10.10, I am come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. You see, there's a lot of people out in the world today don't know Jesus, don't have life. And He came to bring us life. And when He says, by the way, I'm going to give you some guidance on how to live your life, it's always good. And then, of course, there's this chapter 22, which I love because it's just snuck in to the passage, even before the blessing part. And, and it's really wild because here he's talking to another guy, Eliakim, who was an actual person. And he says, and the key of the house of David, I will lay on his shoulder. So he shall open and no one shall shut. He shall shut and no one shall open. Where have you heard that one before? Well, take a look at Revelation. Because that is exactly said of Jesus Christ by the prophet John in the New Testament, the one that wrote the Revelation. And he said that of Jesus. But he didn't say this, but it's certainly true. I will fasten him as a peg in a secure place and he will become, like, he will become a glorious throne to his father's house. They will hang on him all the glory of his father's house, the offspring and the posterity, all vessels of small quantity from cups to all the pitchers. So here's the imagery. In every house, there were a series of pegs where they hung cups, pots, various things. A lot of kitchens are done that way as well today. makes good, efficient use of, of wall space. And he's saying, there's going to come a day when I'm going to put somebody, I'm going to give them the key to the city of David, and I'm going to hang on him. I'm going to put him like a peg in the house, and I'm going to hang on him all the cups. But in that day, he says, that peg that is fastened will be removed and cut down. And there's the cross in Isaiah. Because the Lord Jesus was nailed to that cross and there he died, suffering in our place. And there he took our sin. And he was cut off. And the burden that was on it will be cut off for the Lord has spoken. And so this was... Uh, this is a, a beautiful little chapter, chapter 22, which we needed to mention as well. Isaiah 40, spoken of by John the Baptist. Comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, her iniquity is pardoned. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. John the Baptist came quoting this very verse. And so as we speak of this prophet Isaiah, the New Testament is full of quotations of this same one. And he says in Isaiah 42, My servant in whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nation of Israel. That's not what it says. It says, to you, the Gentiles. I don't know how many of us can lay claim to being a part of the nation of Israel, but I'll tell you one thing. I'm glad he said that God cared about everyone and he would bring forth justice for me, a Gentile. And so, we have the passage at hand. So, I'm sorry it took a long time to get to the passage at hand, but it's okay. Because, thus says Jehovah, where is the certificate of your mother's divorce, whom I have divorced, Isaiah 50? Also, to whom of your creditors have I sold you? For it was for your iniquities you have sold yourselves, and for your transgressions your mother has been divorced. So how was it when I came there was no man present? Why when I called you there was no one to respond? Is my hand severed and cannot deliver? Or do I have no power to rescue? Look, 
At my rebuke, I dry up oceans. I make rivers become deserts. Fish die of thirst and stink because there is no water. I robe the sky with blackness. I put garments, its garments as dark as sackcloth. And the Lord Jehovah has given me the tongue of a disciple. Now, in verse 4, Isaiah shifts from speaking about God to speaking as God. And the Lord Jehovah has given me the tongue of a disciple that I should know how to speak a timely word to him who is weary. He wakens me at the dawn of each morning. He wakens my ear to hear as a disciple. The Lord Jehovah opened wide my ear. I was not rebellious, nor did I backslide into apostasy. I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who ripped out my beard. I did not hide my face from disrespect nor from spittle. For the Lord Jehovah will surround me and I will not be ashamed. Moreover, I set my face like a flint. I know I will not be disappointed. He is at my hand who justifies me. Who is he who condemns? Let us stand united. Who is my judge that renders a verdict? Let him come near to me. This second section I want to just zero in on as our passage for Isaiah 50. The Lord has given me the tongue of the learned or a disciple that I should know how to speak a word in season to him who is weary. Wow. God loves to strengthen those who are weary. He gives power to the might and to those who are weary, he increases strength. And so the God who we worship, who is the God of the scriptures, the Bible, the God of Isaiah, is the one who wants to give you all that you need for this day. Do you notice he says he wakes me at dawn of each morning? He woke you up. Now, some of us woke up and we thought it was our cell phone going off with a new text. Some of us woke up with an alarm clock. I know there's a few of us still use those. Some of us woke up with uh, maybe our watches. Some of us still wear watches. Not too many of them. But we all woke up this morning. But it was God that woke you up with the breath of life. It's, our, it's your breath in our lungs. So we pour out our praise. That's what we sang. And each one of us is breathing right now because of the grace of God. He says, the Lord Jehovah opened wide my ear. Most teachers and the students, then when they look at that, they consider that this is a, uh, a reference to the matter of making a person a slave for life. If you were a slave born in a, into a family and grew up in that family and you wanted to stay in that family because you loved the master, you would go to him and say, would you please put the all to my ear and make me a slave for your family forever? Now you'd say, well, why would anybody ever do that? Like, isn't freedom so good? Remember, the world outside the walls of that house and that mansion or that fortress was a scary world for someone who was a slave. A slave was not a person. A slave was a commodity in the Old Testament time. And a slave was a person that could not even expect justice, only pray that there would be some mercy. And so that person would come and they would say, put the all to my ear, make me your slave forever. And it's suggested here that perhaps this is the reference that the Lord Jesus is saying, like Isaiah 6, who shall I send and who will go for me? And Isaiah says, here am I, send me. But Jesus said that same thing in eternity. He said to his father, the people need a shepherd. The people need someone to seek them out. 
But more importantly, the people need a sacrifice and a Savior. I will be that sacrifice and that Savior. So I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who ripped out my beard. And I did not hide my face from disrespect nor from spittle. And we know that Jesus in the Gospels, in Matthew 26, verse 67, and in Matthew 27, verse 30, as he's, it's described what they did to him, one of their actions was to strike him, blindfold him, and keep hitting him. So now, who was it that struck you this time? If you're a prophet, you should know. You don't have to have your eyes open, really. And they would grab hold of his beard and rip his beard and spit at him. But that was just the beginning of the suffering that Jesus experienced for you and me. He went to the cross. But before he went to the cross, he went to the place of scourging. For those of us who've seen the movie and saw that long and extended period of scourging that he experienced, we know that that is only but a little of what he actually experienced. Because he said in, in Gethsemane, Lord, remove this cup from me. And what cup was that? The cup of God's divine wrath that would be poured out on all sin for all time. And he was going to take that cup and consume it on the cross. And your sin, that sin of lying, that sin of deceit, that sin of adultery, that sin of fornication, that sin of whatever, those sins, he takes them and he says, I am going to bear your sin, my sin, on the cross. And we have to say, I don't want my sin on me anymore. I want to place it on you. And that's what the act of receiving Jesus is all about. It's as if you have never sinned. Justified. Just as if you have never sinned. And the act is so that He takes our sin in His own body on the cross. And that's what He did. They spat His face. They beat Him. They spit on Him and with a reed struck Him on the head. And the Lord surrounds me in Isaiah 50 again. And who will condemn me? Now, where have you heard that before? Check out Romans 8. If God be for us, who can be against us? Paul is not just quoting bumper sticker slogans. He believes it. Do you? Do you believe God is for you? That no one or thing can be against you? No power on earth can shake you because of the God who dwells in you? as long as you're walking in His ways and in His will. This is an amazing thing that we have, we've been given the gift of eternal life. And so, who among you fears Jehovah? Who obeys the voice of His servant? Who walks in darkness without light? Now, he ends the chapter, in chapter 50, with this thought. There's a big divide in this world, and it's a simple divide. It's the only divide that God speaks about. And that's those who have life and those who do not. Those who are embracing Jesus Christ and those who do not. And he says, look you who kindle a fire. Those of you who circle yourselves with sparks. Walk in the light of your fire. See how far you get. Isn't that true? Campfires is the great thing about summertime, right? You have that campfire. You enjoy it. You get ten feet, three meters, four meters away from that campfire. And what happens? I can't see. Get back into the fire. Come on, get back closer to the fire. Right? 
But when you're walking with Jesus, the Lord is my lamp and my light. He is my shield and defender. He's my high tower. He is your light every time. That's what the Lord Jesus said. I am the light of the world. And so he says, for those who refuse, you shall lie down in death and in great distress. But for those who love Jesus, how precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his servants. So, chapter 50, Israel is divorced and Jehovah came, there was no man, but there is a man right now. And that man is Christ Jesus. And so he says, look unto me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. I'm going to skim through these vastly, but if you want to review them, they'll be on the web, so don't worry. I am God, there is no other. And I've sworn by myself, the word has gone out of my mouth and shall not return that to me every knee shall bow. I love what a little girl had on her sign. She said, uh, you're either going to bow now or bow later. That's what the Bible is clearly saying. So God says, look to me and be saved. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He brought forth as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shearers was dumb, so he opened not his mouth. And we'll just move on. And for he has made sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. First Peter 2.24, who his own self bear our sins in his body on the tree. And so, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him, we'll sup with him, and he with me. Have you opened the door of your life? Now, you would say, I'm sure many would say, oh, absolutely, absolutely. Let me ask you this. Has the king come in? You see, if you have any part of your life that you're not prepared to surrender to Jesus, there is a very real possibility that he's never come in. And you're just playing games. You're, You're doing the fake news thing. So, be careful. Paul put it this way to the Corinthians. The same people he wrote, love is patience, love is kind, love is gentle. The same people says, test yourself. Be sure you are in the faith. Are you in the faith of Jesus today? May you have surety. There is a room at the back that is open and available. If you want to talk to somebody about what it really means or you have other prayer requests, please feel free to do so. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for the time we could spend here this morning. Hmm. Let's learn a bit more about you and your love for us. Amen. I pray that as we go, we go in your love and peace and grace. In your name, amen.